Valentine's Day has rolled around again and finding a potential mate may be on a lot of people's minds. But how do you go about finding a mate if you're stuck to the seabed like a coral? I'm Sarah Castor-Perry and in this Naked Scientist special, I'll be finding out more about how corals have found a spectacular solution to this problem from someone who's actually seen it in action. James Guest from the National University of Singapore. So I witnessed multi-species coral spawning or mass coral spawning as it's commonly known on quite a a few occasions now, uh, mostly in Singapore, um, but also in the Philippines. And it's a pretty spectacular event. Typically, you only see it at night time. And just before the spawning, um, you know, nothing is really happening. It's very quiet and there's no activity. And then suddenly, uh, within a period of about half an hour, you'll start to see uh, bundles of eggs and sperm. They're, they're, they're small bundles. They're a few millimeters across. They're often pink or, or red or orange. And they start to be released from um, many colonies at the same time and also often many species at the same time. And the effect is something like a, a sort of a snowstorm in reverse, upside down, because the, the bundles are also buoyant. They contain lots of lipids. And they start to float to the surface. So you can imagine at night time um, with all these brightly colored bundles all being released from uh, many, many colonies at the same time, the effect is very spectacular. It's something like perhaps being in one of those snow globes, those little toys that children have. Towards the end of the spawning event, the the bundles have all collected on the surface of the, the water. So when you surface, there's a big slick of coral eggs and sperm, and it's a bit like a, a almost like an oil slick, and uh, it, it's quite smelly. It has quite a, a strong smell, and so when you surface from the dive, you you actually uh, get covered in uh, all of these coral gametes. So how many times in a year do we see the spawning? Well, uh, typically the, there is uh, one often one major event. Um, so there's a kind of a, a peak in spawning activity. Um, in some parts of the world, it is around springtime. In Singapore, it is. It's in March, April. Often, actually, quite close to the around the Easter weekend, we, we find uh, we typically have the the peak of spawning. Um, however, there are other spawning events, and and not all the corals go off at one time. Some individual species and some colonies will go off more than once in a year. And how on earth do the corals manage to coordinate to make sure they all spawn at the same time? Sure. No, I mean, it must be absolutely critical for them to, to, to spawn at the same time and, and within, within literally a few minutes of each other, because if they spawn more than an hour apart, the gametes from one, as you say, will have drifted away and, and fertilization won't happen. Um, it's still a bit of a mystery exactly how they do it. But I mean, there's, there's, basically, it must be at two levels. So, so at one level, the, uh, the corals must have some internal biological clocks that certainly run on a daily rhythm, so what we call circadian clocks, but they could also run on a lunar rhythm, so a circa-lunar clock. They may even run it on an annual cycle, so a circa-annual clock. And uh, we know quite a lot about circadian rhythms for a lot of other organisms, but we don't have much information about that for corals uh, yet, although there is some research being done now. But then on another level, there's also the environmental cycles. So the, the internal clocks that the corals have um, must be sort of entrained by these environmental rhythm, rhythms. So the, the environmental rhythms kind of keep the clocks uh, in check. And there may be uh, quite a number of uh, different environmental factors that are involved at that, 
again, at different levels. So the day-night cycle is probably the one that we're, we're most confident about, that it has a role, because corals tend to spawn usually not long after sunset, one or two hours after sunset, and we can actually manipulate that. It's, it's quite easy to put a coral in the dark a bit earlier or, or, or keep it in the light for a bit longer, and that typically, if you do that, that will affect their spawning time. So, so that's the one factor that experimentally we have uh, some idea about. Unfortunately, the other factors are very difficult to experiment with, um, so we still don't have a good handle on how temperature and sunlight and lunar cycles and so on actually affect uh, coral spawning patterns. Okay, so once they've spawned and you've got all the gametes floating around in the sea, uh, what happens next? They, they meet and they fertilise and they create a new coral. How does that happen? What happens after they've all released all their gametes? So a lot of the uh, coral eggs are, are buoyant, so they float to the surface. They bring the sperm with them bundled up in these little packets. And after a short period of time, the bundles break apart and the sperm from uh, one colony will try to find eggs from another colony and fertilization happens right there in, in the water column. And usually relatively quickly they can fertilize. Fertilization can happen within, within minutes of bundle release. And we found certainly um, in experiments that uh, within an hour, if you have, if you have uh, coral gametes in tanks, you have almost 100% fertilization. Uh, so it all happens quite rapidly, and it is probably very important that it happens rapidly because there's all sorts of predators out there that want to eat the eggs and so on. Once fertilization happens, the, uh, an embryo will start to develop, and by the next day, uh, well, actually after about 24 hours, what you'll have is, is something that's starting to look close to uh, being a larvae. It will be a, a little round uh, ball. And then after about another 24 hours or so, um, you'll have a, a kind of cigar-shaped thing called a, a planular larvae. Then they'll spend quite a number of days in the water column as larvae. Basically what will happen is they'll start to sort of use up the resources that were provided in the egg. So what they'll need to do is find a, a good piece of hard substrate somewhere on a reef at around the right depth in the right conditions. And then what they'll do is um, they'll detect um, chemical cues on the substrate, and the chemical cues are usually associated with the type of algae. And once they've detected those, they'll, they'll metamorphose, and so they'll change into from being a planular larvae to becoming a polyp. And the polyp has a, a mouth, and it has a, a, a gut, and it has tentacles surrounding the mouth. Slowly over time, they'll begin to become a coral colony. But throughout that whole process, there's many, many gauntlets that they have to run, and uh, they have to avoid predation. Uh, they have to uh, um, uh, avoid uh, just sort of being washed away and, and not finding a, a piece of reef. As soon as they settle on the reef, they could be overgrown by algae. Uh, they could be scraped off by um, a grazing fish. Um, they could be covered in sediment, and there's all sorts of things that they have to face. So very, very few of the eggs that are released actually survive to settlement, and then very few of those survive to become adults. On top of all the uh, natural challenges that they face, there's the um, addition of the, the sort of human impacts that almost all coral reefs around the world now are feeling. Uh, I mean, aside from climate change, uh, many reefs are experiencing very high sediment levels because of land reclamation, and coastal development, and so on. So um, excess sediment uh, sort of falling on top of a small coral polyp can very, very quickly smother it. And of course, because they, they contain symbiotic algae, they need light to photosynthesize and, and, and survive. So if they get 
smothered by sediment, very quickly they uh, won't be able to photosynthesize and they're going to have problems. Another problem is um, overfishing. So many reefs around the world have lost um, the big herbivorous fish, which do the job of cleaning the, a lot of the algae off the reef, uh, the sort of fleshy algae, the seaweeds and so on. And again, when coral spat have to sort of compete for space with algae, often the coral spat won't do as well, and so that's a big challenge for them. And then added on top of that, there's the bigger problem of, of climate change. There's not really much known or, or really anything known about how climate change is affecting the processes of coral reproduction um, and the, the, the process of uh, post-settlement mortality in corals. We know quite a lot about how it affects adult corals. And of course, it's having a big effect because we're getting these anomalously warm um, years and we're having lots of corals that are seeing lots of corals that are bleaching. That's when they, they lose their symbiotic algae. And uh, if they don't recover them relatively quickly, they, they tend to die. And of course, the, I suppose the effect then is that those corals are, are no longer there. They can't, they're not going to be adding new uh, progeny to the, to the future generations. That the few corals that are left uh, they're not going to have so many individuals that they can mate with. And so if you, you know, when we go back to what we talked about earlier about these mass spawning events, the, 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 I suppose the critical thing for those mass spawning events to be successful is to have lots and lots of individuals all spawning at once. But if the sort of critical mass of corals has suddenly dropped drastically, uh, as you can imagine, the, the chance of successful reproduction is going to become much lower. Because of the overproduction of gametes by the corals to buffer against things like predation, we could use the mass spawning to seed or repair damaged reefs, so either moving the collected spawn to new places or taking them back to the lab to rear them and then releasing them out into the field. Uh, How would that work? Well, I mean, this is something potentially exciting, and this is some research that uh, we've been focusing on for the last um, few years so there's a couple of ways that this could be done. One, one way is to sort of harvest um, uh, mass spawn slicks, just take billions and billions of embryos, and exactly as you said, is, to just, is just to pump them down onto a bit of reef, uh, maybe within some sort of enclosure, uh, and, and try to just massively boost the amount of recruitment. Um, the other way is, uh, again, as you say, we could uh, rear them in, in the lab so that we Basically, we try to sort of overcome all those uh, mortality bottleneck that you experience in the sea um, and then settle them in a, in a tank on land, uh, let the corals grow up to a size where they've got a good chance of, of surviving and then place them back on the reef. So the first method, we've done some experiments with that. And although it works in the sense that we can, we can boost recruitment, um, what we found is that if you look at six months or one year down the line, the reefs that we have artificially seeded don't look any different from the reefs that have not had any uh, seeding. Um, and I think it, it's just because the, the levels of post-settlement mortality are so high that, that most, almost all of the corals that we um, seed onto the reefs are dying, and, and they just look the same as the reefs that we, we didn't do anything to. So um, at the moment, that particular method doesn't look like it will be very successful. The, the other method of rearing the corals in the lab for a period of time potentially has some promise, and we've had a bit of success with that in designing um, some little substrates that are cheap and easy to make, and we can settle corals onto them, we can rear them, Um, in tanks for a while and then we can also rear them in a nursery in the sea for a period of time and then eventually we can plant them onto the reef and we've had some success with the technique 
the main problem with it with it is it's actually very expensive to do so um uh, uh, just because of all the labor costs and so on and the time involved, um, it, it, even in a very optimistic scenario, um, it works out to be several dollars per, per coral. So we're talking about maybe like a two-year-old coral. Um, it's going to cost um, um, at least $5 in a very uh, optimistic scenario. Now, if you imagine trying to scale that up to uh, square kilometers of reef, um, the, the costs of of this restoration activity would be absolutely phenomenal. And um, so really, I mean, if you had that kind of money to spend, you'd think that it might be much better to spend it on, on management initiatives, on protecting an area, um, uh, you know, perhaps uh, funding a, a patrol boat, a ranger, and these kinds of things, you know, sort of methods that we know are, are, are more likely to be effective at least at this stage. I mean, I, I think we need to do more research on these restoration techniques, and it may be in the future um, that, we, that they can have some, some, some really good uses, and there's some pretty exciting stuff um, that, that, that can be done. Um, I think whatever happens, you know, restoration is never going to be the only solution. We have to uh, manage reef ecosystems effectively from the point of view of managing fisheries sensibly, coastal development, um, aquaculture development, and you know, ultimately at the big scale, uh, managing climate change. I mean, that's of course a really difficult thing to do because it has to be done at a at a international level and a community level and and so on. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think we have to remain optimistic and we have to we have to keep sort of pushing the message that that reefs are really important, that they're threatened. Um, but there have been some really good examples of reefs that you know when they are well managed they recover very well from disturbances. That was James Guest from the National University of Singapore talking to me, Sarah Castor-Perry, about the incredible spectacle of coral spawning. A shorter version of this interview is also included in the latest Naked Oceans podcast, Sex in the Sea, where we're looking at the weird and wonderful way marine creatures manage to find themselves a mate. If you'd like to have a listen and find out lots more about the wonders of the underwater realm, check out thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.